Welcome to the Talk to Your Pharmacist podcast. We're dispensing stories of success from across the continuum of care. I'm your host, Hillary Blackburn. Thanks for joining us to learn from leaders throughout the pharmacy industry. Hey, listeners, in this episode, we have a very interesting guest sharing more into the behind the scenes of clinical trials. All right. So today we have a special guest on the Talk to Your Pharmacist podcast. Our guest, David Volcano, is a well-known thought leader and change agent in the clinical research industry. Through numerous associations, boards, initiatives, publications, presentations, and contributions. A native of New Orleans, he has a master's degree in both social work and business administration and holds the additional status of a certified IRB professional, regulatory affairs certification, and certified blockchain professional. Among other things, he is the uh, vice president and responsible executive for clinical research for HCA Healthcare providing research-related compliance and strategy consultation to their portfolio of hospitals, physician practices, and healthcare technology companies. He's also the president of the Nashville Angel Capital Group, and his wife and he are empty nesters living in south of Nashville, Tennessee, where they involve themselves in work, family life, as well as other charitable and entrepreneurial opportunities. David, welcome to the Talk to Your Pharmacist podcast. Thank you, Hillary. I'm very excited to be here. Well, we're excited to have you and talk about this topic. Um, and, you know, I got to share a bit about your background and, and even a little bit about your, your personal life, which I think it's always great for people to know um, where, you know, in the U.S. or wherever um, you're calling in from and hail from. And uh, so, yes, also right here in Nashville, as um, HCA is is headquartered here, and love hearing about the different things that people spend their time in um, outside of their professional world. But you definitely stay busy, which is great. So um, maybe we could just start off. Um, you know, as a lot of the the listeners or, or pharmacists or students or just those who are interested in this, um, you know, industry. Um, but something that, you know, maybe you could kind of just define before we go on to this uh, uh, rest of the interview is what is research? <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it that really is a, a great question to start off with because, uh, you know, a, a, a lot of people, there's a lot of different kinds of research and research industries and things along those lines. I mean, when, when I think research in, in our setting, when especially when it deals with, with pharmacists, you know, a, a lot of people went through school and they did research projects. Uh, they looked at, you know, retrospective data analyses, quality assurance type research, performance improvement right, type research. I mean, research is, is uh, you know, the, the, the boring federal definition of a systematic investigation designed to produce or contribute to generalizable knowledge. So that, that's your boring regulatory definition. And, and it can be done in a variety of, of methods. So pharmacists, I mean, obviously you guys are, are doing a lot of research. 
whether it's retrospective research on your own, uh, a lot of people are using pharmacy data to put artificial intelligence and machine learning languages onto to try to figure out better algorithms, uh, better predictive for drug-drug interactions, uh, outcome analyses, and things along those lines. Uh, but then there's also your clinical trials type research. Uh, and this is, you know, when drugs are... Uh, it could be devices too, but in our, our world, it's drugs or biologics that get out of the initial stages of preclinical testing and go out and we start doing those testing in humans. And they go through the various phases of development before they can get the marketing approval from the FDA. So a lot of those researches are, or a lot of that clinical trials type research is taking place in the hospitals and the physician practices and not just academic centers. I mean, in, in the late 80s and early 90s, there was a huge migration out of the academic centers and into the private sector. So many community hospitals uh, and uh, physician practices and uh, even retail pharmacies are, are now uh, getting into the game for industry-funded clinical trials. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So maybe you could share a little bit about um, some of the current challenges uh, that are you know facing the clinical trials industry. So some of the challenges are old challenges, uh, but, but uh, we certainly are experiencing a lot of new challenges in, in the clinical trials industry. I mean, obviously in clinical trials, the, the biggest inhibition to medical progress in general is recruitment of subjects to be in the clinical trials or getting patients to volunteer to be in clinical trials. Uh, you know, the, the most patients don't know about it. The infrastructure only supports select sites to be selected for these trials. Not every site and every hospital are going to be selected for these, these trials. So the, the medical delivery ecosystem, you know, puts a lot of obstacles out to getting patients into clinical trials. Mm -hmm. uh, in addition to that, certainly in the past decade, the inclusion exclusion criteria is, is, is getting more and more stringent to get patients into clinical trials especially in oncology. You know, it used to be 20 years ago, did you have breast cancer? And then you can enroll in the clinical trial. Now with all the DNA sequencing and whatnot, it, it's, it's, you know, do you have certain subsets or certain DNA sequencing behind that uh, breast cancer, which very much narrows the inclusion exclusion criteria. So it, it, it's great for scientific purposes to run these studies in a controlled environment, but it does make it more and more challenging for people to enroll in the clinical trials. Uh, recently, some of the biggest challenges is, uh, and this started before COVID, of doing what, what's kind of called decentralizing the trial site uh, and, and extending the clinical trial site either via mobile professionals or via technology. So I, I I call it the, the shifting from blockbuster video to the mm -hmm. Netflix model of delivery. Now, I know many of your listeners are young. They don't remember the joy of going to blockbuster video to rent mm -hmm. their movie or their, their VHS or, or DVDs. Um, but you had to go in physically to one of these locations as opposed to having it follow you, whether it's on your home, your phone, or your friend's house or, or anything along those lines. So we're, we're shifting and, and trying to, you know, number one, increase enrollment and retention in the trials by extending the site out and not requiring every visit to take place at a clinical research center, but in the home mm. via technology, Bluetooth scales, 
um, other electronic patient reported outcome systems, uh, telecommunications with the patients, uh, as well as mobile health professionals to go do things like blood draws and EKGs that need to be provider-assisted procedures pursuant to that clinical trial. And that's caused some interesting challenges as well as some interesting opportunities uh, for individuals as we try to follow the whole healthcare industry in trying to meet patients where they are as opposed to having them to come into our bricks and mortar locations. Mm-hmm. Um, fascinating. Yes. Uh, all right. So uh, the decentralization and we, and we've certainly seen, you know, remote patient monitoring and some of these technologies really be adopted since, um, the COVID-19 pandemic and, um, glad to hear that clinical trials have followed suit and making it a little bit easier, uh, to, you know, get enrolled and yes, have seen, um, now I can't recall, but but, you know, probably some of the, the big, large chains like CVS or Walgreens getting into the game of um, helping to yes. enroll patients. Um, so I, I don't know how um, in debt or how closely pharmacists there at some of those um, pharmacies are helping with that process. But um, tell us a little bit about, you know, so that's, you know, patients have to kind of know about the trial or hopefully be at one of these sites or maybe they're a patient at um, one of these pharmacies or things, but, um, what about, you know, a little bit of the variety of, of patients, you know, a lot of times it's, you know, healthy, uh, males. What about, um, other patient groups like elderly or pregnant populations or women, or, um, there's probably not too many, you know, children included in these, unless it's like a pediatric, um, focused product, but any more details on kind of the, different subsets of um, populations and how to yeah, expand that? Sure. I mean, there, there's huge pressures now, especially in the United States. I mean, you know, when, when I go into other countries, they, they don't feel the uh, the tailwind, so to speak, of diversity, equity, inclusion, and clinical trials as much as we feel it in the United States. So, you know, when I go to Europe and Australia and you talk about diversity, they're like, eh, that's right now more in a United States thing, uh, not so much in our country, but they expect it in their country to come uh, uh, fairly soon. So the, the biggest initiatives, and this is a lot of FDA guidance and some, some uh, U.S. legislation uh, last year on you know, talking to industry and saying, hey, if, if you're going to be marketing a drug or a device and the, the epidemiology of that patient population, let's just say, you know, it, it's 20% Hispanic, 15% African-American, 7% Asian, or, you know, whatever the numbers are, uh, male, female, uh, you know, and, and certain age brackets, that your clinical trial population should be representative of certain of these demographic subgroups. Uh, mm-hmm. Kind of start off with race and ethnicity, uh, but uh, our FDA started off with race and ethnicity. Race and ethnicity. Sorry, I got tongue twisted there. But uh, the Congress came back and says, nope, that, that's not enough. We need to include uh, sex. We need to include age brackets in mm-hmm. that as well. So FDA will 
soon be requiring the manufacturers uh, when a drug enters phase three of clinical trials to start including their diversity, equity, and inclusion plans of, you know, what is the epidemiology of this disease? How does it striate with sex, race, ethnicity, and certain age groups? And show me your plans that you're going to enroll the clinical trial population that represents that. Uh, you know, you don't want all Caucasians for a, a um, uh, drug that has a significant presence in the African-American population, just as you don't want it the opposite of, of you know, doing clinical trials only on African-Americans when it's the Caucasian population that's, that's going to be the exclusive or the majority beneficiary of that. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the pharmaceutical companies are, you know, as they're going to have to start submitting these plans, are looking at well, what can we do? Uh, you know, we, we have to challenge ourselves to think differently. And, you know, when I look at my own journey along this, I used to think, why is this my problem? I don't turn away Hispanics. I don't turn away African-Americans from the trials. But then I was challenged when I heard this, the statement of it's not about not turning away. It's about, did you build this for them? So, and you think, well, maybe I didn't build it for them. So when you have inclusion exclusion criteria that says English speaking only, uh, or you have electronic diaries that are not translated into Spanish or German or French, uh, where you know you're excluding those populations, uh, mm-hmm. you know, so hmm. you know your clinical trial sites are they interested in building community relations uh, in underserved communities uh, with that have health disparities already. So, and pharmacists play a key role in that. I mean, it's one thing I hear so often as, as a asset in a community, it's the community pharmacist. Uh, You know, most of these folks, they cannot get to the doctor. Uh, Mm -hmm. They don't have that trusting relationship with a doctor because they only see them very so often. But so many people tell me, especially in underserved communities, that community pharmacists is one of their most trusted people for their healthcare. And what better person to help educate these folks on the, the importance of contributing into clinical trials. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's a great segue into um, how to get pharmacists more involved in research and the clinical trials um, segment. You know, just I've seen it just seems like tremendous growth in opportunities, job postings, et cetera. Um, A trial, you know, clinical trial coordinator or this or that. Um, And a lot of pharmacists, you know, maybe they're thinking, gosh, that sounds neat. Or, or, or how do I apply for that? And, you know, what, what kind of, you know, what could I add to my resume so that I could, you know, break into that, um, area of healthcare? Yeah, no, no. And, and, and we definitely are, are, uh, having workforce challenges in this area. Uh, you know, as, as, as you mentioned, Hillary, you know, a lot of new postings in this area, uh, because it's growing in general, and then we have current workforce challenges in the post-COVID arena uh, that's caused a lot of churn in the clinical trial industry. Many folks have exited the industry altogether. Uh, many of our key folks have uh, accepted other roles uh, at pharmaceutical companies or, or CROs, which are contract research organizations that manage these studies for the pharma companies. Uh, and so a lot of the churn is at the clinical trial coordinator level, as well as what we call the CRA or the clinical research associate, 
which uh, you know known colloquially as monitors. Uh, so the research coordinator and the monitors are, are two quasi entry level positions into this industry. And uh, that's where we're seeing the biggest churn right now. So, you know, there is the demand for this workforce, for workforce. We definitely need people. We also need the next generation to come in. Old guys like me with balding and graying hair are not the future of this industry. You know, it, it's the young folks, it's, it's the young pharmacists that are coming in with the more technical savvy, with more vision on what technology can do and improve these systems to, uh, you know, come in and, and challenge the status quo and really teach us these things. We always joke that, you know, the pharma, especially the pharmaceutical companies, you know, they're so advanced when it comes to medicine, but they're so far behind everybody else when it comes to executing these things, when it comes to technology adoption and things along those lines. We, you know, we seem to be a laggard in those areas. So, so the workforce issue uh, is is definitely in demand mode right now uh, for young professionals that have this kind of background. As pharmacists, you definitely are coming to the table already with a great amount of education. Um, you know, clinical trial sites and CROs, I, I have a meme that I created. Many of you have probably seen the meme of Big Bird sitting at the table with all the executives. Uh, and it's basically, yes, the... the, um, the Receptionist showed up to work today, and now they've, you know, have a new job as a clinical research coordinator. It, it's coming as a pharmacist. You're already coming with a, a baseline of information as to how drugs are developed, uh, you know, how you can establish certain protocols and things like that. So your background is already giving you somewhat of a competitive advantage to enter into this field. Now, what you may not have is uh, what we call the GCP training, which is an acronym for good clinical practices. And the GCPs are, are put forth uh, for drugs. It's the International Council of Harmonization, or the ICH. It's guidance E6 for good clinical practices. And this is the international guidelines for drug development. This is what makes a clinical trial done in the United States able to be contributed in Japan for their approval, or Europe, or Australia, or Canada. So the major uh, countries of the world are GCP-abiding countries uh, that show how you do clinical trials. So if you're coming already with a foundation on drugs, the development process, you know the phases of development, you know know, what pharmacokinetics are and and things along those lines. Uh, So I would say go out and you know, research a little bit about the GCPs, download that document. There is a variety of training out there and professional associations. Uh, I know I'm involved with with the um, Association of Clinical Research Professionals that can do GCP training. Uh, I'm involved with the Society of Clinical Research Sites that have a lot of that type of training. There's other professional associations out there. Uh, one is called SOCRA, the Society of Clinical Research Associates. So these are your professional networks that you can get plugged into, get GCP training. They often have job postings and um, uh, and, and even chapters, like ACRP has chapters around uh, the, the, the globe, uh, especially in the United States, that you can, if you can join, you can affiliate with, start networking and talking with those individuals. If you're already working in a hospital setting as a pharmacist, go down to the basement or wherever you've put your clinical trial department and start talking with these folks. Uh, you know, we have this mantra of two years experience to be a CRA, 
to be hired by a, a, a contract research organization, but we don't really have that in at the site side of things. So if you're a, uh, you know working at a hospital that has a clinical trials department, you know, go spend a little time, see what they were doing. I mean, they may have annoyed you because they come with you to, with investigational drugs to store and weird requests like, hey, I need a blinded and an unblinded pharmacist for this study and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, pop over there, see the kinds of things that they were doing. If, if you have handled investigational drugs, it's always a good thing to put on your CV uh, that you have been a pharmacist for investigational drugs and you know a lot about this on, on that go forward. So, yeah, GCPs is, is a core education. If you can come to the table with a, a certificate or something from an online GCP course, that's fantastic. Uh, and then uh, put investigational products management on your resume. Uh, you'll you'll definitely be a cut above the rest when you uh, start having discussions with these potential employers for these potential positions. Excellent. That is very helpful and some great guidance uh, on that. So I know people are probably taking note and, and hopefully adding. Pharmacists love to add certifications and extra letters to the end of our name. So, um, you know, social workers like that too. You, you've seen mine. I got a license in social work. I got my master's in business. I certified IRB, certified Iraq professional fellow ACRP. So yeah, I, I think I have more initials at the end of my name than, you know, more characters in the beginning of my name. So I'm, I'm mm-hmm. with you on that. Yes. Yes. Um, well, great. So, you know, another component that, um, we haven't really touched on yet is, um, you know, who are some of the different stakeholders, uh, involved? So of course you've got to have patients, you've got to have the sites to, um, actually administer, uh, these. And then a lot of times it is pharmaceutical companies. Um, they are of course incentivized, uh, to, you know, help study their drug that they may have developed and, um, and get it approved by the FDA. But are there other stakeholders and what other, you know, entities other than pharmaceutical companies are some of the major funders? So, yeah, let's go about the funders. So the the funders in in regulatory language, we call those sponsors. Okay, so many times, and and the sponsor is the one who initiates the the study. So, yeah, when you're talking about drugs, uh, biologics, diagnostics, or things governed by the FDA, Typically, your sponsors are private drug companies and biotech companies because their their purpose of doing those clinical trials is to get marketing approval from from the FDA. Um, but there are other sponsors out there. The federal government is one of the largest, or the U.S. federal government, NIH, is one of the largest funders of clinical trials out there. Now, uh, they are not funding studies to get commercial products where the NIH comes in oftentimes is, is looking at maybe products that are off patent now and in generics, but maybe there's new uses for these or combination of uses. We see this a lot in oncology when you're trying to get different um, cocktails, so to speak, of and, and different mixes of different drugs uh, out there to you know do comparative effectiveness type research on you know drug A plus B plus C versus drug A plus B plus D kinds of things. So the federal government does fund a lot. Now there are 
obviously dealing with the federal government contracts, there's all sorts of strings attached that your your institution will have to deal with, uh, but they are a major and, and not insignificant sponsor of these, these types of research involving drugs, biologics, and whatnot. Um, there is, when you talk about non-clinical trials, um, well, even, well, I'll say in clinical trials, still there are nonprofit foundations. Patient advocacy groups are doing some funding of these, as well as other large nonprofit foundations. Everybody's probably heard about Gates Foundation and the work that they do, especially in foreign countries, for clinical trials on, on rare diseases and exotic diseases, and particularly diseases that there's not a commercial viable product that the for-profit industry is going to do. So, so those are some other funders of clinical trials. When you talk about data research, uh, you know, gosh, there's all sorts of funders of that. I mean, obviously, you still have your industry-funded, you know, pharma companies, device companies, things like that. Uh, but then you also have a lot of these, uh, uh, you know, products of algorithms. Algorithms are now a product, a commercial product. So, you know, a lot of drug databases, like I mentioned earlier, you know, they want to use this data. Data is the new oil, and they want to mine the oil and have these machines figure out just fascinating things. You know, how do you predict this? How can we avoid black box warnings if we have other predictive models that can make drugs with a black box warning safer for patients? And, you know, all these types of algorithms that, that's, you know, maybe you have as a pharmacist instituted them once they have been validated, but there's a whole lot of science and study behind understanding that data to validate those that many pharmacists get involved in as well. Hmm. Interesting. Wow. Well, we have have gotten a very good overview and and some deep insights uh, into this, you know, world of research. Uh, So thank you, David, for sharing so much of your knowledge on on this topic. Um, What advice do you have in, you know, making a difference outside of the pharmacy um, through, you know, professional associations? You mentioned, of course, some great ideas on looking into those for other certifications and things, but um, just other advice that you have uh, on that. Yeah, no, I mean, I have found, especially as I get older, uh, you know, of, of trying to give back to the, the community, I call it professional tithing. So, you know, what am I doing to help with, with the next generation or what am I doing to move the needle in a larger setting. So, I mean, I, you know, think back on my, when I was just a lowly social worker right out of social work school, realizing, good gosh, I can do so much more rather than just one-on-one. Uh, I can do much more if I am infrastructure building or, or, or working at a macro scale on, on things. And that's kind of where I moved a lot of my career to very soon out of, of, you know, doing social work school and doing direct care in that area. Um, But, you know, within the four walls of your organization, you can do a lot of great things. But I find some of the most rewarding work that I do right now is getting out in with dealing with the professional associations and the trade associations. I mean, the ones that I involve myself with in the most are are ACRP, which is the Association of Clinical Research Professionals, as well as the Society of Clinical Research Sites, or SCRS. Um, You know, both of those have given me, you know, I've, I've learn more in those organizations than just within the four walls of, of my institution. Uh, but then I also give back to those organizations the different perspective. 
newer perspectives, independent perspectives. And I know that we've moved the needle. I mean, there are things that I know that we have been involved in that have changed regulations, changed industry practice, changed economics, and things along those lines. So, you know, what I call it is, is what jazzes me most about being part of this industry uh, in, in my role in it is it's great that all the scientists and the clinical trial professionals are finding the answers. What jazzes me most is changing the way that answers are found. So when I know, and I've seen that I've contributed and colleagues of mine have helped contribute, we've led efforts, we've followed efforts in this on changing the way that answers are found, that just accelerates health development, improves health, improves all the ethics of healthcare, healthcare delivery, and things along those lines. So those are the things that jazz me the most. So you're getting things out of that. Yes, don't get me wrong. Uh, but also giving back and being part of these greater initiatives really moves the needle in this process. Awesome. Well, thank you. Yes, we often hear, you know, the importance of uh, being involved, not just joining an association, but actually, you know, joining committees and um, being an engaged member. So uh, appreciate that, you know, in all different disciplines, uh, that there's so much value in that. Um, and that kind of uh, my last question that, that I love to ask all of our guests and maybe that kind of tails in with it, but I'll just see if there's anything else you'd like to add. Um, what's some advice you would tell your younger self, uh, or for others out there just getting started in their career? Gosh, uh, my younger self, I would make sure that, uh, I mean, I'm pretty happy with my career. Don't get me wrong. Uh, and I did a lot of this and, and I certainly wish that I would, uh, you know, or I'm glad I did it and possibly could have done it more is just make sure that you're diversifying your thought and your experiences within, uh, um, you know, as you're going through your career. Um, you know, when I was, uh, and if I can remember this correctly, uh, you know, I had the opportunity for kind of a little jolt in the career change and our job change. And I thought real hard and reflected. And I came up with kind of five variables as to uh, how I would make that type of decision. And I recognize that those variables will be very different throughout my life cycle. So, you know, depending on my life circumstances, it may be different if I'm young with kids or planning to have kids or with young kids versus older uh, versus, you know, I have not a lot of money savings versus I do have money savings and things like that. And kind of those five variables, if, if I remember them, uh, can rattle them off under pressure here, Hillary, is, uh, you know, one obviously is compensation and compensation can be different. You have salary. If you're working with startup companies, maybe you're doing a lower salary, but you're having more potential equity uh, for that. And, and your salary needs may be different. Uh, and, and that's total compensation. Do I need health insurance or not? Am I married to someone with health insurance or versus do I need to get with something? So compensation is certainly one thread. Uh, another thread is autonomy. You know, how much are you going to be left alone to empower yourself in whatever role that you're doing to go forward and, and do what you need to do? The third one is lifestyle. You know, what, what is that lifestyle? You know, you are not your career. Your career is very important and you can be very fulfilled in that. But your lifestyle is 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 something, you know, what is my blend of work from home versus um, um 
you know, work in an office versus what flexibility do I need because I have kids and I have to go to the soccer game versus travel versus not and things along those lines uh, within lifestyle. Um, let's see, the, the fourth is challenge. So are you accepting a position that you're going to be challenged in and the challenges are certainly meetable. You don't want to have a position with the, with the challenges that are so great you can't possibly do it and you get burnt out on that kind of stuff or frustrated and you're going to leave after you know a year or two. You, know, you want to make sure that the challenges are meetable, but then the challenges will also evolve with you. Because if, if two years you've met all the challenges, there's no more challenges, you'll get bored. So are you going to be in a position that you'll constantly get new challenges that are meetable and obtainable? And then the last one is legacy. What do you want to leave behind? You know, when we basically, you know, get off this planet, turn in the worm food or whatever it is that we go when we depart from this spinning ball we call earth, you know, what did I leave behind? Did I move the needle? Did I make this place a better place than when I left it? And, you know, when you reflect on, at least I think those five things in deciding career changes, I think that that's, um, you know, can help guide you on that path, but definitely diversify your thought in this, you know, read books, go to articles, get out of your comfort zone. I mean, right now, my biggest thing in getting out of my comfort zone is I go to all these web three meetings mm-hmm. and blockchain meetings and things along those lines, you know, fascinating technology. You can't understand it, but you have to immerse yourself in those communities. So am I a tourist? Yeah. Am I uncomfortable? Yeah. But you know what? I'm assimilating it and it, and I can see a diversity of, of, of opinions, uh, a lot of new people that are excited and have some things that I can respect. And uh, that helps ground me as a better person and gives me a, a better foundation that I can be more successful in the verticals that I go into. Fascinating. I'm so glad I asked that question. I'm going to Definitely borrow those five categories that you shared. That that was fantastic. I think people will get a lot of value out of that. Well, David, it was such a pleasure to have you as a guest on the Talk to Your Pharmacist podcast. Oh, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. And listen, I mean, anybody, please feel free to reach out to me anytime. I'm on LinkedIn. I don't go there very often. I'm not the best social media type person, uh, but feel free to reach out to me directly or through ACRP or SCRS or HCA or, or any of those organizations. I, I, you know, I definitely want to talk about this stuff. It excites me. And if you're excited about it, it's just going to excite me even more. I love it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Talk to Your Pharmacist, produced by the Pharmacy Advisory Group. If you liked this episode, let us know by subscribing to the podcast, rating, and reviewing it. Share it with friends. And if you want to be a guest or know a pharmacist leader who has a great story to tell, Connect with me, Hillary Blackburn, on LinkedIn and check out our Facebook page, Pharmacy Advisory Group, for updates on new podcasts. Thanks for listening. 